the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. A Bible stands like a rock undaunted mid the raging storms of time. His pages burn with the truth eternal and they glow with the light sublime. God's inerrant, infallible word, our holy Bible, stands as an eternal lighthouse in a decaying world. This worldwide independent radio ministry outreach of the Bible Stands is dedicated to the proclaiming of the great truths of Scripture for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, here is our Bible expositor, Wayne Carver. Welcome to today's broadcast of the independent faith ministry of the Bible Stands. It's a real privilege to come into your home or into your car or into your place of business with this message from God's Word. Today we'll begin a study that I call the Tower of Babel. This is a study of the first nine verses of Genesis chapter 11. To open this first message of the series, let's read Genesis chapter 11 and verse 9. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. The first nine verses of Genesis chapter 11 tell of an event of almost equal importance to that of the Great Flood. The Great Flood in the days of Noah was worldwide in its destructive effects. Likewise was the confusion of tongues of worldwide impact. The families of that early day were divided. The effects of that division at Babel extended even to the present family of nations in the world today. The gathering together of the earthly families to build the Tower of Babel and the judgment of God upon this venture were real historical events. These verses of Scripture do not present some mystical allegory. Rather, they tell the story of one of the most significant rebellions in the history of humanity. Nimrod, the son of Cush, was the human leader of this great rebellion. However, behind Nimrod, the post-flood world's first antichrist, stood the spiritual personality of God's adversary, Satan. The story of the building of the Tower of Babel is the record of the organization and the initial failure of Satan's great plan of rebellion. Satan's efforts to build his city and tower as a monument to himself in the earth have continued down to this present day. Verse 1 of Genesis chapter 11 takes the reader back to those earliest years in the history of this post-flood world. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. These words open the scriptural account of the building of the Tower of Babel. We're told that the entire post-flood population springing from the three sons of Noah was of one speech. Or to use the more literal translation of the original Hebrew, they were of one lip. This means that there was only one language spoken by the entire population of the world. Up to the time of the building of the Tower of Babel and God's judgment on this act of rebellion which resulted in the dividing of the nations mentioned in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 25, nothing had ever transpired to cause more than one language to come into existence. There was no need for more than one tongue. The entire population of the world had sprung from one family. This, of course, means that all had started out with a common language. The Hebrew word translated language in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 1 is a word which actually means lip. The usage of the word is such as to indicate that the lips of all the people of the world were shaped alike in uttering words. 
This is an idiomatic way of saying that the language was the same. The word translated speech is the Hebrew word debarim that actually means words. The use of this word indicates that the people of the world had a complete vocabulary. There have been those who use this verse to teach the caveman theory of man's origin by saying that it means that the people of those days had few words. They then incorrectly claim that it means that the early people of the world were only able to utter a few guttural sounds. This, of course, is an evolutionary concept. It's not a proper interpretation of this scripture. Human speech is a gift of God. Adam was given the gift of speech from the very moment of his creation. God gave man the power to speak because God desired that men communicate with him. Speech provides the ability to communicate thoughts and ideas, and speech is an attribute of God. God's written revelation to us is designated by him as the Word of God. When God, in the person of God the Son, took on the flesh of humanity so that he might reveal God to us, he was spoken of as the living Word of God. The gift of speech was one of the attributes of God that was shared with God by man from the very moment of Adam's creation. God has not left us in doubt about this because Genesis chapter 2 reveals that one of the earliest tasks that God gave to Adam was the task of naming all of the created animals. This assigned task not only informs us that Adam had the gift of speech from the very beginning, but that he also had a very broad vocabulary. The speech of Adam was the speech of all the pre-flood world. Although the population of that world developed along two distinct lines, both lines shared a common language. That's why the apostasy that brought about the judgment of the great flood in the days of Noah was able to spread so rapidly. The sons of God, the godly line of Seth, and the daughters of men, the women of the ungodly line of Cain, spoke a common language. There was no practical barrier to intermarriage. So when the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, they took them wives of all which they chose, according to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 2. In polygamous marriages, the early training of the children is left almost entirely in the hands of the mother. Therefore, the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men, for the most part, followed after the ways of the daughters of men. Soon, almost the entire population of the pre-flood world had turned to the ways of the world, and God was forced to wipe away that evil population with the waters of the great flood. Only Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives survived God's judgment of the great flood. These eight persons were aboard the ark of safety. They were lifted up above that destruction that God brought upon the surface of the great world of the antediluvians by those very same waters which were used to bring about that destruction. The ark had floated on the surface of that great universal sea until that day when it stuck fast upon the mountains of Ararat. God had lifted up the continents of the post-flood world. He had formed the ocean basins. He had allowed the universal sea to drain into those prepared basins. In the course of time, those eight human passengers had been able to disembark from the great floating vessel which had been their means of salvation. Noah and his family transplanted the language of the pre-flood world into this world. As Noah's sons became the fathers of children, they passed the language of their ancestors downward to those new generations of this present world. The human population began to multiply. 
Each family branch continued to speak that same language which had been brought into the post-flood world by the passengers of the ark. There was no need for more than one language, and there was no reason for more than one language to develop. After the passage of a few decades of time, the population had increased considerably beyond those eight persons who were the original seed of life in the post-flood world. In spite of the increase, all of the family branches continued to speak the language of Noah. The divine author has a reason for placing the description of the rebellion at Babel subsequent to the Table of Nations of Genesis chapter 10 rather than prior to it. The rebellion at Babel spawned the religious system and the political system that later scripture designates as Mystery Babylon. The religious system born at Babel at the time of this great rebellion against God is the basis of all the false religions present in this post-flood world. All paganism springs from this Nimrod-led rebellion. Satan's toehold upon the spiritual aspects of the religious institutions of the post-flood world was established here. The sacred author has placed the account of the building of the city and the Tower of Babel here where it stands between the record of the Table of Nations, which describes the political results of this rebellion and its accompanying judgment, and the record of the descendants of Shem and the call of Abraham, which are related directly to the fulfillment of God's purpose of bringing his son into a world that was all but dominated by the pagan religion of Satan, that religion which was established through Nimrod. There were no language barriers among the families of the expanding population of the early post-flood earth. Because of this, it was easy for all men to join together to accomplish common goals and to establish common enterprises. It was easy for a natural leader like Nimrod to make himself known to all of the world's population and to propagate his rebellious ideas to all of the descendants of Noah. Nimrod was everything that the natural man admires. He was a mighty one, a hero in the earth. He had established a reputation as a great hunter he had tracked down and fought with the dangerous wild beasts which were beginning to plague the human population of the early post-flood world. He had destroyed those beasts. Nimrod tried to persuade men to look for happiness within himself and in the things of the world rather than in the Lord and in the things of the Lord. Nimrod taught that man could shake off the yoke of Jehovah, the Lord, by establishing a basic unity among all men and by building an earthly empire with earthly goals. That empire was to have a religious worship directed not to God, but to leaders such as Nimrod himself. The common language of the early post-flood world made it easy for Nimrod to propagate his poison to all of the inhabitants of the earth. God's word introduces and comments on the man Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Eric, and Akkad, and Calneh, in the land of Shinar. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, contains the record of the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom at Babel. In our continuing study, we will consider both the historical details and the spiritual significance of that beginning. I see that my time is almost gone for today. We'll continue with our study of the Tower of Babel on the next broadcast.
Thank you for tuning in to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's so good to greet you once again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. We're involved in a study of the Tower of Babel as this historical event is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Let's read Genesis chapter 11 and verse 2. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. The expanding families of the sons of Noah remained together as a common body during those early years after the flood. The ark had come to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and the eight human passengers had left this vessel of refuge. They, as the floodwaters had continued to recede, had moved down the slopes of these mountains to the lower and warmer lands below. The scripture tells us that they moved eastward from that point of initial entry into the post-flood world. This is the way that Genesis chapter 11 and verse 2 should be rendered. And it came to pass as they journeyed eastward that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. The movement of these early peoples was toward the east, not from the east. The historical record included in this part of God's word lets us know that the early population of the post-flood world moved eastward down the slopes of the mountains of Ararat toward the broad, fertile plains of the Mesopotamian Valley. Apparently, there were several intermediate stops made as a part of this slow migration toward the east. Noah's first vineyard, mentioned in Genesis chapter 9, was apparently on the lower slopes of the mountains of Ararat themselves. But as the population continued to increase, and as the waters continued to slowly recede relative to the height of the land areas, so that the slopes of Ararat became higher above sea level, and thus more severe in climate, there was a continued movement of the population toward the low, fertile plains of the Mesopotamian Valley. There probably were some other intermediate stops before these descendants of Noah reached the site on the Euphrates River, which Nimrod chose for the beginning of his kingdom. The region chosen was a great, flat, well-watered, fertile plain. The area had a pleasant, mild climate, not too unlike the climate that had prevailed all over the pre-flood world. They found a plain in the land of Shinar. The word Shinar seems to be an early form of the word summer, this geographical region was known in the ancient world as Samaria. The Sumerian Empire was formed here. There had been no separation among those various branches of that expanding first family. All members of the human race spoke the same language, and they all had common goals and common ideas. They had formed a single society, and they were looking for a spot on the post-flood globe that would support the expanding population as they continued to group together as one large cultural unit. Noah and his sons and their respective wives all knew the Lord. They had put their trust and their faith in him while they were yet citizens of the pre-flood world. God had preserved those eight people through the judgment of the great flood. He had spoken directly to Noah and to his sons after they had disembarked from the ark. But children had been born to the sons of Noah after God had established the everlasting covenant and after he had left off speaking directly to those eight people who had entered the post-flood world. These children inherited the sin nature that had become a part of the fallen human race at the time of Adam's sin. 
It was necessary for each of these new individuals to look to the Lord and to place their own personal faith in Him in order that they too might be regenerated unto a spiritual life. No doubt Noah and his sons had taught the new generations that sprang from them the things of God. But these children and grandchildren of the sons of Noah had rebellious hearts. Not all of them looked to the Lord in faith. Those who chose to place their faith and their trust in the earth and the things of the earth walked the same path that had been marked by Cain, the first son of Adam. They went out from the presence of the Lord. One grandson of Noah, Ham's youngest son Canaan, had already manifested his rebellious nature at the time of that event of Noah's drunkenness, Ham's sin, and Noah's prophecy, all of which were recorded in Genesis chapter 9. The tendencies that came to the surface in Ham at the time of this moment of stress had already been displayed in Ham's youngest son Canaan even at that time of this event. Ham was a believer in the Lord. We were told in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1 that he had been blessed by God. So these evil tendencies in Ham were restrained and he did not totally give in to them. But not so Canaan. Canaan had chosen the ways of the world. He had turned his back upon the Lord. The unrestrained evil that was present within him was to grow and it was to be propagated to his offspring. And, speaking prophetically, Noah was forced to say, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be unto his brethren. So as the human population of the early post-flood world migrated eastward from Ararat toward the broad, flat plains of Mesopotamia, this mass of humanity had become a mixed multitude. It was a conglomeration of men and women, some of whom were persons who had believed on the Lord and in His promises, and thus possessed spiritual life, and many others who had turned from the Lord and who sought their happiness in the things of the earth. Those who had turned from the Lord were indulging in the vile sins of the flesh in an unrestrained way. They exercised no restraint upon the lusts of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. The unregenerated men and women were an evil influence upon those of the younger generations who were being born into that society of the mixed multitude. Even the offspring of believing parents were finding the ways of the flesh more alluring than the ways of the Lord. They too were turning from belief in and worship of Jehovah to the sinful ways of the ungodly. Noah was a preacher of righteousness in the pre-flood world. No doubt he continued in that capacity in the post-flood world as he began to see his descendants turning into those paths that had led to the destruction of the first world. Also his middle son Shem, perhaps also Japheth, and certain others of the godly men of that early day followed Noah in his preaching. They pointed to God's judgment upon the pre-flood world. They also pointed to the necessity of the confession of sins and to the necessity of turning to the Lord in faith in order to avoid future judgment of God. But to many, sin was more alluring. The ways of the flesh seemed better than the ways of God. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Nimrod, the youngest son of Cush, had risen to a position of prominence among this mass of the early post-flood world population. He was a natural-born leader, he was a man of great physical strength and ability. He had become a hero among the men of his day, largely because of his ability to track down and destroy those wild animals who were already becoming a menace to the human population. Nimrod had all of those qualities that natural men admire. 
the men who were his contemporaries looked up to him as a superman. But as his name would imply, Nimrod was a rebel. He desired to be free of the rule of the Lord. He desired to be followed and worshipped himself. Contrary to the teachings of Noah, Shem, and others of the early post-flood world, Nimrod taught that men should look to themselves and to the things of the world for their happiness and for their well-being. He taught that men did not need to look to Jehovah for forgiveness of sin and for instruction in righteousness, but rather they should look to other gods who were not only sympathetic with, but who actually condoned the indulging of the sins of the flesh. Nimrod came under the power of Satan and his demonic horde. He and his wife, Semiramis, introduced demon worship to the world. He led a rebellion from the knowledge and worship of God. He introduced those beliefs and practices that we know today as paganism. Nimrod was a rebel before the Lord. He taught that if man should only unite in a oneness of social order, of political organization, and of idolatrous pagan worship of demon gods, then the yoke of Jehovah could be thrown off. These men could go their own sinful way rather than the way of righteousness which those who knew the Lord were proclaiming. Therefore, under the leadership of Nimrod, the mighty hunter of the souls of men, the expanding population of the early post-flood world set out to build a united world kingdom arrayed against God. Such a kingdom, though its development was against the express commandment of God, was possible because all the population of the world shared a common language. They were able to cooperate in such a united venture. God had said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The commandment to fill the earth was a commandment to spread out over the entire face of the habitable land areas of the globe. This commandment expressly forbade the gathering together of the population of the earth into one place to form a one world empire. Satan, acting through Nimrod as leader, set out to defeat God's purpose in the earth. In those early centuries of this post-flood world, Mankind was brought into a moral and spiritual crisis. Nimrod and his followers wanted a one-world cultural and political system, just as many in the world want a similar system today. In Nimrod's one-world system, all distinctions were to be eliminated. There was to have been one amalgamated bloodline, one language, one great world kingdom, one godless aim, and total centralization of world power. This has been Satan's purpose in the world ever since that time. I see that my time is almost gone for today. We'll continue with our study of the Tower of Babel on the next broadcast. Welcome to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. We're involved in a study of the Tower of Babel. The history of this event is contained in the first nine verses of Genesis chapter 11. Let's read verses 3 and 4 of Genesis chapter 11. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Nimrod had succeeded in influencing a major portion of the population of the early post-flood world into joining him in rebellion against the Lord. The peoples of that early population had migrated eastward from the mountains of Ararat into the Mesopotamian Valley. 
They'd found a large fertile plain in the vicinity of the Euphrates River. This location was capable of supporting a large population of urban dwellers. It had a pleasant, mild climate, and it most likely reminded the leaders of the various families of the descriptions of the antediluvian world that had been given by Noah and his three sons. It was in this area that the individuals of that expanding population of the early post-flood world decided to build their city and their tower in defiance to the commandment that God had given to Noah and to his sons. The peoples of the early post-flood earth had two choices. They could separate into family units, and each family unit could migrate to a different area of the globe to establish a unique culture and civilization of their own in separation from other divisions of humanity. Through this choice, the entire habitable land area of the post-flood globe could be occupied in relatively short order. The earth would contain a number of individual expanding societies, each looking to God for their spiritual well-being and for their physical sustenance. Or, as a second choice, they could group together into one large urban population, establish a headquarters and a seat of political authority at one specific location, and then form a highly integrated, self-sustaining culture consisting of agriculturalists, artisans, builders, merchants, politicians, and so forth. This latter choice would bring all of the peoples of the world under the authority of one political head. Both the spiritual well-being and the physical sustenance of the members of this one world society would be under the control of that one powerful leader. Actually, there was only one choice if the people had desired to be obedient to the Lord. God had told Noah and his sons to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The commandment to fill the earth does not only mean that the power to procreate children was to be exercised so as to generate an expanding population, but also that the various elements of the population were to physically separate themselves from the other elements and to move to the various habitable land areas of the globe. The earth was to be filled. The various geographical areas were to support their own autonomous political nations with each head of state placed in his position of political authority by the appointment of God himself. This was God's plan for the population and for the political organization of the society of the post-flood world. The decentralization of power into many small but autonomous nations would prevent the rapid spread of apostasy that had brought the demise of the pre-flood world. This kind of political situation would permit God to preserve a people for himself. He could therefore carry out his purpose for bringing the Redeemer into the world. Again, God's commandment had been, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But Satan stood in opposition to God's plan. It was Satan's desire to create a great one-world political system that would place the population of the entire world under the control of one great ruler. Satan intended that a man of his selection would be that ruler. Through the influence of one satanically controlled antichrist, Satan himself could rule the entire earth. He could thwart God's purpose. He could prevent the coming of the seed of woman. Satan had found his man in Nimrod, the rebel. Nimrod was a man of exceptional abilities. He was everything the natural, unregenerated man admires. He was a powerful man physically, and he could perform almost superhuman physical exploits. He was a mighty one, a hero, 
just as many of the offspring of the mixed marriages of the latter days of the pre-flood world had been. He was a mighty hunter. He was able to seek out and destroy the marauding wild beasts, which had become a threat of considerable significance to the human population of the world. No doubt Nimrod used the threat of extermination by wild beasts to discourage those of the population of the early post-flood earth who, in accordance with God's commandment, advocated the breaking up into family units and the migrating to various remote areas of the globe. Nimrod was a natural-born leader. He had great ability to sway men to his way of thinking. He was able to play down the idea that God was in control of the lives and the destiny of men. Thus, he was able to make light of the fact that God had commanded men to fill the earth. As Josephus said, Nimrod was able to persuade, to persuade men to look for his happiness within himself and within the things of the world and not to look to God to or for his happiness. Nimrod also taught that if the men of the world would only unite under his leadership, that it would be possible to throw off the bands of God. He taught that it would be possible for man to go his own sinful way, indulging in the sins of the flesh without fear of judgment. Nimrod was a persuasive man. He was indwelt and empowered by Satan. Nimrod was able to get the majority of the population of the world of his day to join him in his plans to establish one great world empire. However, there were some exceptions to this general situation. Noah, who was still living in Nimrod's day, and Shem, and one or more of Shem's sons and their immediate family did not join Nimrod in his rebellion. Probably these exceptions had remained behind at the site of Noah's original vineyard there on the lower slopes of Ararat as the mass of the population had continued to move eastward. But Nimrod did have the support of the vast majority of the population of his day. The words that are given to us in Genesis chapter 11 verses 3 and 4 appear to be the decision of a council of the heads of the families of that gathering there on the plain of Shinar. The words of the spokesman of the council of men were, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The entire plan of the rebellion of man against God is wrapped up in these words. This is where the cry of the voice of the world written in the second psalm, was first heard. Speaking of the triune God and his rule over the earth, men cry, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. It was Nimrod who had called the council of the leaders of those early post-flood world families. Nimrod had presented his plans, which include the construction of a pre-planned and pre-laid out city at the center of which was to be a high ziggurat or tower. The city, with its tower, was intended to be a focal point for imperial government and for religious worship. But the God to be worshipped was not the creator of the universe, the God who had spoken to Noah and to his sons as they had begun their life in this new world. They were to worship the God which empowered Nimrod, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Nimrod was to point the way to the worship of a whole pantheon of gods all of whom did not condemn the sins of the flesh that these men had begun to find so alluring. This God would not insist that men fill the earth, but rather he would prefer that men establish a one-world political and religious system. 
This system would bring all men together into one large urban population, all controlled by the rule of one satanically indwelt man. Nimrod's plan was to establish a heaven here on earth. It was his intent to turn the attention of all men from God to himself and to the world system that he would establish. The words which are recorded in Genesis chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, are the closing words of that council called by Nimrod. Nimrod had made his point, and the decision of the council was to follow him rather than God. No voice of sufficient strength to turn the tide of rebellion was heard. Nimrod had his way, and the conclusions reached by those leaders are voiced in these words that close the council. Go to, let us make brick and burn them throughly. Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The hearty go to that ring from the rebellious population was their affirmation that the accepted plan was to be carried out immediately. Go to, let us proceed immediately. Let us begin to manufacture those synthetic building stones which will be necessary for the construction project that we have planned. Let's make molds and clay bricks molded together, and let's fire these bricks thoroughly to make a strong and durable building material. And then let's lay these bricks together using bitumen as synthetic mortar, and let's build a city and a tower. The top of the tower will reach unto heaven, that is, unto the first heaven, the atmospheric heaven, and it will become our focal point for religious worship in the earth. Once again, I see by the old clock on the wall that my time is almost gone for today. We'll continue with our study of the Tower of Babel on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to today's broadcast of the Independent Faith Ministry of the Bible Stands. Let's continue our study of the Tower of Babel by once again reading Genesis chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The hearty go-to that ring from the rebellious population of the early post-flood world was their affirmation that Nimrod's accepted plan was to be carried out immediately. Go-to, let us proceed immediately. Let's begin to manufacture those synthetic building stones which will be necessary for the construction project that we have planned. Let's make molds and mold clay bricks, and let's fire these bricks thoroughly to make a strong and durable building material. And then, let's lay these bricks together using bitumen as synthetic mortar, and let us build us a city and a tower. The top of the tower will reach into heaven, that is, into the first heaven, the atmospheric heaven, and it will become our focal point for religious worship in the earth. The Mesopotamian Valley did not yield natural stone suitable for building purposes. This valley was a broad alluvial plain filled to a great depth by water-deposited topsoil. This topsoil had been left by the recent departure of the waters of the great universal flood. But the Mesopotamian Valley did provide deposits of clay. Clay can be used in the making of fired brick, and fired brick is a very good substitute for building stone. Also, the Mesopotamian Valley provided sources of bitumen or asphalt, 
which could be used to cause fired brick to adhere one to another. This is the material that's referred to as slime. Apparently, much of the permanent building that took place in the pre-flood world had been accomplished by the use of building stones cemented together with a lime and silicon mortar. Apparently also, Noah and his sons, who had lived in the pre-flood world, had passed along this building art to their descendants. But natural stone and lime mortar were not readily available there on the plain of Shinar. These early peoples were ready to demonstrate their ingenuity and their technology by substituting for these natural building materials man-made materials of their own development. And they had brick for stone and slime or bitumen had they for mortar. The unified political and religious system that these men were about to build was just as synthetic as were the materials that they had available to build their city and their tower. There is no true unity among men who are in rebellion against God. Everything about these builders of Babel was false. The false used as a substitute for the true. Stone is a product of God, not of man. But brick is a product of man. The lime and silicon mortar, which is normally used to cement stones together for the building of a unified structure, is also a product of God. But bitumen, or asphalt, is a product of man's fall, a product of God's judgment of the great flood. The only true unity that can exist among men is that which comes from God. But Nimrod and his followers set about to establish their own kind of false unity. Men have followed their example ever since that day. In scripture, stone is used to represent the things of God. The altars of Old Testament history were built of natural stone. God's instructions to Moses for building the altar upon which sacrifices were to be offered were that the altar should be constructed of stone upon which man had never brought a hammer. If as much as a single chip had been removed from a stone by a tool of man, then that stone was not suitable for use as a part of an altar of burnt offering. Man's salvation is a work of God only. Man's works may not be added to God's works in preparing that structure which speaks of the work of redemption of our Lord Jesus Christ. Natural stone was the only material to be used in altar building. Natural stone stands symbolically for our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the stone which the builder set at naught, yet which became the head of the corner. He's the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. He's the stone cut out without hands of Daniel. He's that smitten stone from which came forth water that followed the children of Israel during their desert wanderings. The Lord was speaking of himself in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 44 when he said, And whosoever shall fall upon this stone shall be broken, but whomsoever on it on which it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Members of the body of Christ the church of our age, are referred to as living stones, aptly fitted together. The church, the body of Christ, appears under the, the figure of a building. This building is formed of living stones, each stone being a work entirely of God. And the mortar which holds these stones together in true unity is the unifying power of the Holy Spirit of God. There is no true unity outside of God himself. God must supply the living stones, men and women who have been regenerated to spiritual life by a work of God. And God must supply the mortar that holds these stones together in true unity as a glorious building formed by God himself. There were no living stones for the building of that false system of Babel. 
The builders were forced to use bricks, artificial stones, which are a product of man. The unity was false also. The Holy Spirit of God had no part in that false unity that was to hold the man-made stones together. It was a unity that comes from Satan and his hordes of evil. The slime had they for mortar. It was the false system of the post-flood world that was to build there at Babel. It was the system of Babylon. It was a system that has never yet been destroyed. The rebels at Babel went on to say, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The city and the tower were not to be dedicated to the true and living God, who had made himself known to the peoples of the earth under his covenant name of Yahweh, or Jehovah. Yahweh had commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and fill, that is, spread out over the earth. However, they had decided to rebel against that commandment and against the God who gave it. So the city and the tower would be dedicated to the worship, or rather would not be dedicated to the worship of the name Jehovah. Rather, this people would find another name, another God, whom they would follow and whom they would worship. It would be a name of their own choosing. It would be a name that designates a God who does not condemn sin. The words of the rebellious tower builders indicate that they are making a total break in their relationship with Jehovah, as they say, and let us make us a name. That is, let us find us a name of deity, of our own choosing, and it will be to this deity that we will dedicate the city and the tower and the worldwide religious system which we will create. It was total rebellion that was contemplated. These men had turned their allegiance from the God of heaven to the God of this world. They did not do this because of lack of knowledge of the true God. God had spoken directly to Noah and to his sons. He had revealed himself. The knowledge of him had been passed on to all of these expanding families. But as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 and verse 28, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. There's no doubt that these men and women were aware that they were definitely rebelling against the God of their father Noah. This is revealed in the closing part of the statement of verse 4. The men said, Let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. They knew that God had commanded them to scatter abroad and to fill the earth. They knew that it was God's will that they do so. They expressed their specific intent not to obey God's commandment, and also to resist any action on the part of God which might force them to spread out upon the earth, as they say. Let us make us a name. Let us select another name of deity, and let us worship and follow him, lest Jehovah make us to be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. It was at Babel that Satan established a foothold of control on the political and the religious institutions of the post-flood world. It was at Babel that idolatry and demon worship began. The two-headed system that scripture knows as Mystery Babylon got its start here in the Nimrod-led rebellion against God. These very people who did not like to retain God in their knowledge were only too willing to welcome knowledge of Satan with open arms. Paganism sprang from this beginning at Babel, and all of the pagan religions of the ancient peoples of this post-flood world are offshoots of the pantheon of gods and of the system of worship that started here with Nimrod the rebel and his wife, Semiramis. As God confused the tongues and as the peoples then scattered over the earth, they carried with them that system of idolatry and demon worship that they had learned at Babel. 
That's why that forms of the same brand of paganism are found throughout all of the known world. The same system of worship that was known in ancient Babylon was found in Mexico among the Aztecs and in Peru among the Incas. Only the names of the deities worshipped are different because the languages are different. But the pantheon of gods are the same. I see that my time is almost gone for today. We'll continue with this study of the Tower of Babel on the next broadcast. You've been listening to The Bible Stands, an independent faith ministry conducted as a worldwide radio missionary outreach by Bible expositor Wayne Carver. This program is dedicated to the upholding of the doctrines of the full verbal inspiration, the total inerrancy, and the absolute authority of the Holy Bible. The messages presented each day are available on cassette tape to those who support this ministry with their tax-deductible gifts and offerings. The Bible Stands is totally dependent upon the contributions of our radio listeners for its continuance on your station. You are invited to send your gifts and offerings, your request for cassette tapes, and your Bible questions to Wayne Carver in care of the Bible Stands radio broadcast. The Bible Stands is a faith ministry totally dependent upon the financial support of God's people for its continuing outreach. The program is sponsored by the Bible Stands radio broadcast. 6510 Spring Roads, San Antonio, Texas, 78249.